I just, I just remember when I first studied, started studying even Roman history uh, in light of the things that, you know, I've been teaching, that there were times when I thought, you know, this, these, these, these historians are going way too far with some of this. They're being just a little bit too exaggerative. Um, but it's happening today. It, it's our world. And uh, like I said this morning, um, sex is like crack cocaine. Pornography. Pornography does not stop with uh, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. It doesn't stop with Playboy. It keeps going and going and going to very dark, dark places. And it's, again, because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of this dark world. But we have a Jesus who is in this, and he's the Christ in us, the hope of glory. And uh, to a church that's living through some of these uh, same realities, uh, Jesus is in the game with them, and he's downloading to his disciple John uh, these letters that are sent to seven specific churches for a very specific purpose, and, and the purpose is to pastor these churches uh, through a culture, through a society, uh, through a politic that is diametrically opposed to Christ and the church that Christ called his church to be. So let's get in our text today. Uh, we're now uh, Revelation 2. This is Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira. To the angel, to the pastor of the church in Thyatira, write these words. These are the words of the Son of God, the true Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I I know your deeds, your works, your lifestyle. I know your love. I know your faith. I know your service, your perseverance that you are now doing more than you did at first. Boy, could God say that about us? Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. But now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings, who have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Just hold on. And now to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will, that one will rule them with an iron scepter, will dash him to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God, we just pray right now for IGM. We pray for their ministry. 
We pray for the people that are part of that. God, we pray for your church right now as it exists all over the world. And God, as we look at the letter that you wrote to this specific church in Thyatira, knowing that your church has been faithful uh, through all the generations so that here we are tonight in this room and not just here because of them, but the baton is in our hands right now. It's our time to run the race. And so God, uh, we just pray that your words would go deep into our hearts and that we could be your church in the world for the sake of the world, for the glory of Christ. Amen. Okay, let's start with uh, Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira too is uh, one of these cities uh, in the province of Asia. And I didn't say this, but in the ancient world, uh, this province is where east meets west. Uh, it's, it's where the eastern world and the western world collide. This is why this whole region is highly cultured, why it's advanced, it's prosperous, it's ur- urban. Uh, there's thriving cities that are adorned uh, now because Rome has come with stadiums, theaters, uh, outdoor shopping malls, spas, hospitals, uh, temples on almost every street corner. Uh, the city of Thyatira, though, is, is unique uh, compared to the other seven cities in this region. Uh, first of all, it's the smallest, and it's easily the most insignificant. And yet Jesus' letter here to the church that exists in this city, in this city is the longest. Now, Thyatira as a city, it's a manufacturing city. Uh, this is not a knock to be a manufacturing city like Detroit uh, is, is a good thing. We, we need cities like this. Uh, or, or maybe a Michigan city. It's a blue-collar town. It's, it's famous for its production of bronze and iron and pottery. Uh, all those things, by the way, are mentioned in, in this letter that Jesus writes, all for this reason. Uh, but what Thyatira is most famous for as a city is its production of textiles to the Roman world. In fact, one of the the textiles that Thyatira was most famous for uh, is purple cloth. Now, purple cloth was was very expensive uh, in the Roman Empire. It was was, um, in high demand, and it was very difficult to produce. Uh, And the reason why it was uh, in high demand among the elites is because only elites could wear it. Only an elite in a Roman Empire could own it. Uh, starting with the emperor, uh, the senators, and then the richest people in, in Rome were only the ones who were allowed to wear purple. In fact, the Jewish people dominated this industry. Uh, they were experts in producing purple cloth, and they grew very rich off uh, its production. And I think there's a reason for this, because they had, that, they had to have purple cloth uh, the tassels that God instructed uh, the men to wear um, had to have a purple thread. That goes all the way back to Moses. So they learned how to develop uh, this color purple, this purple cloth going back to that. And then I even think thoughts like this. How does Christianity make its way to a city like Thyatira? Well, if you read the book of Acts, um, It talks about this woman named Lydia, and Lydia is this woman from Thyatira, and she happens to also be a seller of purple. And she's probably then, uh, don't just think of her just doing just this little uh, small 
business in her basement. She's probably the owner of a Fortune 500 company. She's on a business trip. She's in this Roman city uh, called Philippi. She's Jewish, and it's Sabbath, so she finds a synagogue. And the synagogue that she goes to in Philippi that day just so happens that the Apostle Paul comes through. Paul is the preacher that day, and Paul opens the text and explains Christ, and she gives her life to Christ. And so I can just see her when she returns to Thyatira with her influence, but her heart given to Christ. It wouldn't surprise me if she brought Christianity to this city. Let me just talk about the economy, the Roman economy, uh, the guilds in particular. Uh, the whole Roman economy is, is shaped by these guilds. Guilds uh, are simply unions, but they're more than unions. You can't participate in the Roman economy at any level unless you belong to a guild. And these guilds uh, are, are not just unions, but like I said, they're fraternities. Um, they're, they're also, uh, they provide your social life. It's, it's where you belong. Uh, it, it, it's your place where, where you have friends and experience uh, a sense of family. And so all of one's social life went through a guild. So think about it. if you're a card-carrying member uh, to a guild, that's your, your ticket into uh, the sponsored feast that they would have several nights during the week, or it's your uh, ticket into events like a tailgate and a box seat at a chariot race. Uh, and so the guild was was everything to a person in the Roman Empire. It was more than your work. It was your life. In a manufacturing city like Thyatira was defined by these guilds. Every guild had its own god, and this god uh, was to be worshipped um, by every person that belonged in this guild. Uh, you had to keep this god, god happy. You had to appease this god. So just feel the cost of becoming a Christian in a place like Thyatira. And I'll read Jesus' words in verse 19. He says, I see you. I, I know your deeds, your works. And I hear Christians today saying that, that our works don't matter, that we're just under grace. Your works, what, 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 what do we mean by works? Works is how we live our lives. And of course, our works don't save us. Christ saves us, but... How we live absolutely matters. Jesus says, I see. I see how you live. I think of Jesus' disciple, Peter, writing to the same churches in, in, in this region. He says to them, he says, live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds, your good deeds and praise God. And who does he sound like? He sounds like his rabbi, Jesus who said, you are the light of the world. And let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds, that they may see your life, how you live, and give praise to God in heaven. And Jesus says, I see how you live. Jesus says, I see your love. And the Greeks have uh, four different words for love, and this is uh, this, the this highest form of love, it's, it's agape in the Greek. Agape is the special kind of love. It's the love of self-sacrifice. It's what Jesus says when he says, greater love has no one than this, that, 
that they lay down their life for their friends. That's agape love. In fact, this is the only church in the seven letters that Jesus praises for having love. Jesus praises them for their serving. And what's serving? Serving is just humbly getting down and washing people's feet in all the forms of that. And then he combines this with perseverance, and perseverance implies that there's difficulty. And my guess that the difficulty that these Christians, this church experienced was uh, from removing themselves from the guilts. But then I think, okay, if I don't have a guild, I don't have a life. The church probably became its own guild, its own union, its own fraternity, but one that was radically different from the guilds around them because the guilds in the Roman Empire reflected the empire, reflected Rome. And I don't know if you know this, but Rome placed a price tag on everyone. Every person in the Roman Empire knew their rank. And every relationship, every activity done under the sun was done according to one's rank. Your rank determined what privileges you had or did not have. It determined the places you could go and the places you couldn't go. The events that you could attend or not attend, whether it's the games, the theater. It even determined where you sat at those events. It determined what social gatherings you could attend And not only if you could attend it, but then your place at that social. It even determined the food that you could eat or the food you couldn't eat. It determined what you could wear, what you could not wear. Everybody knew one's status and rank simply by looking at the clothes they wore. And this is exactly where the church hit Rome and its Achilles heel. It turned the whole social order upside down. Think about this. You're a pagan, and you're invited to a love feast, an agape feast. This is what Christians call their gatherings. And you'd come into this thing, and you would be utterly stunned. You'd see the greatest in the room humbling themselves. You'd see the humble being exalted. You'd see the the first making themselves last to make others first. You'd see the rich making themselves poor to make the poor rich. You'd see the strong using their strength to make the weak strong. Sometimes I even think about this. I I, I think about a slave in this uh, context because one-fourth of the empire had the status of slave. Just think about that. And a slave, if, if they were ever at a uh, Roman feast, um, they were just there to serve it, uh, to set it up, to provide the food, to provide the entertainment. And oftentimes the entertainment was in exploitative uh, fashion, as we even heard tonight. And all of a sudden, some Christian invites you to their gathering. And I just think this slave walks into the room, and all of a sudden someone who has purple on uh, all of a sudden gets down and says, sir, could you sit here? Let me wash your feet. <laughs> but that slave just wept like a baby. This is why in James chapter two, James has to scold the church. Why are you treating those who walk in with these fancy clothes and the gold ring on their finger? Why are you, why are you treating them with special favors? 
Why are you telling the poor, uh, just go sit over there? Do you see what you're acting like, says James? You're becoming like Rome. You can't change Rome if you become like Rome. What about us? We live in Rome today. Our world is becoming like Rome. How we live, how we relate to each other absolutely matters. Are we hitting our culture and its Achilles heel? It's the same Achilles heel. Now here comes Jesus' critique, starting in verse 20. It's essentially the same critique that we heard uh, this morning to the church in Pergamum. Uh, the church of Thyatira has a false teacher who's going soft on issues of sex and food. But instead here of Jesus labeling it Balaam, Jesus now labels it Jezebel. Why Jezebel? Uh, I don't know if you know the story in the Bible, but Jezebel is the one uh, who unleashed Baal worship upon Israel. Again, it's not that Baal worship uh, all of a sudden then replaced the worship of God. It was just added to it. In fact, this is why Elijah, uh, when he tried to bring about revival uh, to the people of God in Israel, uh, Mount Carmel, that whole thing, he, he gives a whole speech to Israel and says, why do you waver? Why are you dancing? <laughs> why are you dancing between Baal and, and Yahweh? Yahweh and Baal. Why are you trying to mix all of these things? And see, what they were doing is they were going to church on Sunday, but they were worshiping Baal throughout the week. And this is what false teachers uh, do. There are people who come in and they creatively blend Baal with Yahweh, especially in those places of tension. Uh, false teachers like to remedy uh, those tensions by softening God and his word to adapt the faith to fit the culture around us, kind of like the snake in the garden. <laughs> Did God really say that? It's a frightening thing to take God's word and to try to conform it to the world around us. And when you look around us right now, it's easy to see how the tensions are growing. One of the big questions for us today, is the church of Jesus Christ willing to stand against culture? Do we have the guts? Do we have the courage to be different? We just take these Roman guild feasts. Uh, first of all, to enter any guild feast, uh, the first thing everyone uh, did is they offered incense to the guild's God. And then uh, everybody would sit down and Romans don't eat the way we ate tonight. They didn't have table and chairs. Uh, they recline when they eat. Um, and they recline in these places uh, in this uh, U-shaped uh, kind of dining arrangement. And then all the servers uh, come and in the middle serve them their food. And first of all, it would start with delicious food, fine wine. Uh, they would gorge. And then oftentimes they'd go outside, they'd vomit, they'd throw it all up so they could eat it all again. The feast then over time slowly transitioned from the food to the entertainment. Uh, the entertainment would essentially begin with slaves who would, brought it, would be brought in. It would start with some dancing and things like that. It would move to uh, 
more debauchery. Um, in fact, whatever your fancy was, uh, a slave would be there to satisfy it. And as we heard tonight, many of these slaves were young, were young children. And the night would essentially end in orgy. And this was all considered worship to the God. Feel the cost of becoming a Christian in a place like Thyatira. And you have teachers in the church saying, you tolerate this? That's not what they're saying. That's what Jesus says. The teachers, the false teachers are saying it's okay. It's okay to go to these feasts. It's okay to participate and still be a Christ follower. And Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate this. What do we tolerate? Again, this church is is known for its love. Jesus highlights their love, um, and yet their love uh, becomes so loving that they just look the other way. Are we looking the other way? If you remember the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus, the Ephesians were strong on truth. They were committed to truth, but they lacked love. And Thyatira is so strong on love, but it lacks commitment to truth. Thyatira has the same issues as Pergamum, uh, eating meat offered to idols and sexual immorality. And this morning we address sexual immorality. Tonight, let me just say some things about eating meat offered to idols. Um, First of all, let me start with this. Almost all the meat that was eaten in the first century of Rome was first offered as a sacrifice to one of the gods in the temples. This is why this is debate. Can we eat the meat if it was offered to a god? The temples were essentially the food processors, the meat lockers of the the ancient world. So there the meat would be offered to the god and then it would be butchered and processed. Uh, The priestesses would get the choice cuts. The leftovers would be sold in the markets. Now let's just state the obvious. This is not our world. Um, And so we read these texts on meat offered to idols and we're left confused. But here's one of the reasons why I love uh, this text is because I think it's a window in looking at how the church dealt with issues that in one sense appear to be black and white, but then in another sense are very com- complex because here Jesus treats the meat issue, uh, meat, meat offered to idols as very black and white. I'm, I'm scared to almost question this because Jesus just said it's black and white, but I'm gonna still say, but is it black and white? Um, especially when you look even at what Paul uh, says in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. I mean, he spends two whole chapters talking about the issue of eating meat offered to idols. And it's here where Paul shows us the complexity of the, of the issue for these early Christians. He doesn't provide them with a simple, uh, do this and don't do that. He deconstructs the whole issue to the point where it almost sounds like Paul's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Uh, and, and where he's almost conflicting with Jesus' exhortation to Thyatira. But it starts to make sense if you understand uh, that world, because the issue that Paul is addressing is not so much about the meat, but the environment in which they are eating the meat, like these guild feasts where they're eating meat 
uh, in a context that leads to sexual orgy. This is why uh, Paul says what he says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 25 through 26. He says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and everything in it. And if unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. So what Paul is saying is here is that you are actually free to eat the meat, that food is just food. Then later, Paul changes from food is just food to food is not just food. Again, it's about the context or the environment. Where are you eating this meat? What's the context? What is it leading to? Is it leading to sexual immorality like a guilt feast? It might be be like Paul saying, you know, I permit you to have a glass of wine in your home at night, but not at a strip club. This is why Paul changes from food is just food to food is more than food. Paul says eating meat in that context actually is demonic. I think the reason why Paul goes into all the complexity here is he wants Christians to understand that the deeper issue here is more than just food. What food can we eat? What food shouldn't we eat? The more important issue here is how are we to relate to our pagan world? When are we to fully identify with our world by eating meat? And when are we to stand against our world by not eating meat? And this brings me to Jesus. How did Jesus relate to the world? Well, first of all, he fully identified with the world. He loves the world. He embraced the world. He he incarnated himself in the world. Uh, The Gospels tell us that Jesus ate with sinners. In fact, he was called a drunken and and a glutton. Of course, he wasn't either of those things. But this speaks to the extent that Jesus made his home in the world. But then there are also times when Jesus stands against his world. I mean, there's a reason why he's rejected and why he's challenged and even hated and eventually killed. But then there are times when Jesus transcends culture. I mean, you read the Sermon on the Mount, the whole sermon is about how Jesus wants us to transcend culture. He says, You've heard it was said this but I say to you this. Now to us, food just seems inconsequential, yet throughout the story, the biblical story, uh, God asks his people to stand against the world, their world in terms of food. He instructs them to eat kosher. Again, kosher isn't just what I can and can't eat. Kosher determines who I can eat with and even the kinds of places I can be and the kind of people that I can hang out with in those contexts of eating. So God calls us to himself. And he calls us to partner with him to restore and to repair and to reconcile a world that he loves. At the heart of this call to his people, both Old Testament and New Testament, is a call to be holy, to be different, to be set apart. And this is why God gives his people specific instructions about the most basic things, how they're to dress, 
How we dress matters. How we're to eat, how we're to work, how we're to rest, our rhythms of life, how we are to live, how we are to relate. God says, be holy as I am holy, be set apart. And here's the deal. This distinctiveness that God is calling to is never to be used as a weapon to beat up the world. It's to be used in life-giving ways to serve the world, to repair the world. This is why Jesus says, be salt. Salt stings, but it preserves, it heals. He says, be light. Light pushes out darkness, but it's hot. And now we get to our New Testament. And all of a sudden, the gospel is breaking out of its, of its Jewish settings. And it's going to pagan places like Corinth, Pergamum, Ephesus, and Thyatira. All these Gentiles... Uh, living these pagan lives are now coming into the church. And the question quickly becomes, how Jewish must these Gentile believers be? So a council of apostles actually convenes. You can read about this in Acts chapter 15. The council essentially concludes, Jewish, are they to be Jewish? No. Distinctive? Yes. In fact, they placed a handful of requirements on Gentile believers. The first of these requirements is no eating food offered to idols. And the second one is that they are to refrain from all pernea, sexual immorality. And sometimes people think, wow, this council made it easy for these Gentile believers, but they just don't understand the culture to refrain from sex and meat offered to idols cost these Gentiles their life. In the guilds, it cost them socially, it cost them economically, it cost them pleasure. It ostracized them from their families, from their friends. It hit them right at the core of their old life. Which is why Jesus' words are so strong to the church of Thyatira. Words, honestly, that when I read them, Does the church today even have uh, the guts, the capacity to hear these words? These aren't my words. These are the words of Jesus, writing to the church. And he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. And after what I heard tonight, I say amen to the justice of Jesus Christ. He says, I'll strike her children dead and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. He's just not messing around with our call to be holy. Are we holy? Are we distinct? Do we look any different today from the world around us? 
Because like I said this morning, if, if, if we aren't different, if we aren't holy as God is holy, we have nothing to offer our world. It's our distinctiveness in Jesus Christ. It's our Christ-likeness that we offer to the world. Without it, we'll have no impact. I don't know if God's putting anything on your heart. He's putting his finger on, on, on any sin in your life. It's obviously not could be meat offered to idols. This is not our world. But what is the equivalent? What idols right now do we offer ourselves to? Are there associations that we belong to? Are there places that we shouldn't be? Or what do we tolerate that just causes us to wink and nod or look away? Or what are we saying yes to? What, what are we devoting so much of our time to? Is it, is it just the things of this world? Is it money? Is it advancement? Uh, is, is it our affections uh, for, for even things like sports? I'm glad I ran into a Buckeye fan today. I, I walked away and I'm like, he's just like me. <laughs> we have the same obsession. Michigan fans and Buckeye fans, we have that in common. Do we cross lines with fandom? See, we can't worship God on Sunday and then worship idols throughout the week. I think sometimes, sadly, the biggest idol in all of our lives is our own self, how easily we can just make ourselves our own idols, focusing on ourselves, being obsessed with ourselves instead of being obsessed with Jesus. What I want us to see here, the greatest threat to Thyatira, it's not external. It's not Caesar. It's not Domitian. It's not persecution. It's internal. Jesus is calling his church to repent. Why? Because with Jesus, it can't be both Jezebel and Jesus. It can't. Repentance is just this wonderful gift of turning from our idols, returning to the arms of God. And when we repent... (laughs) This is how the explosive power of Christ is unleashed in our lives. In fact, look at the promise of this text. Jesus says to the one who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him Morning star. This this is amazing. Because Jesus here is quoting Psalm 2, and and Psalm 2 is a messianic text that describes Christ and his rule, how his complete authority will be over all nations. He wins, he triumphs. And the surprise here is that this authority of Christ will be applied to the person who overcomes. That Jesus' authority is now our authority. 
And I'll tell you what this confronts. It, it confronts this defeatist attitude, this defeatist mentality that has made its way into the church. It's very popular these days. We don't have to live defeatist lives. We don't have to make defeatist choices. We're always entangled in sin. We don't have to have these defeatist attitudes. Woe is me and the world is falling apart. We don't have to be defined by, by what the world says about us. We can overcome. As Paul says, we are more than conquerors. And how do we personally come to know and experience this authority where this authority of Christ is realized in our lives and through our lives? Well, look at how Jesus overcame. It wasn't by flexing his muscles. He won by losing he received power. He unleashed his power by giving up power and laying down his life. And this is how we get power. So when we finally give up, we give up our lives. We raise our hands. We say we, we surrender. And that's repentance. And God, tonight, for the people in this room, starting with myself, and for your church as it exists all over the world. God, would there be massive amounts of repentance? God, would we turn from our idols? Would we turn wholeheartedly to you? God, your worst judgment, even as we read in your text tonight, is for the church, your people. Is God, you want a people who are holy as you are holy. You want a people who you can partner with to reclaim and redeem and restore a, a world that you love. And so God, in this time, in our time, would you raise up a church that loves you and that is passionate about the things of God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.